Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. On this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy of Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed toward positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. In this episode, we talk about data and identity, and often those things are linked to NFTs. Rabbit Hole has an intro to NFT skill that gets users started with all the platforms they need to dive into the world of NFTs. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Evan from Disco. Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. I cannot wait to chat about Disco and all of the things that you are thinking about around data privacy and ownership and all of that goodness. Before we dive into it, though, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? Absolutely. So I first fell in love with distributed ledger technologies before I knew the term Web3. About a decade ago, when I was an undergrad, I was really into free and open source software, creative commons licenses, and the legal wrappers we used to make our data more free, and had an absolutely incredible professor in computer science, Elizabeth Stark, who now leads Lightning Labs in the Bitcoin ecosystem. But back then as my teacher, she um, set me forth on a journey that led me to Bitcoin. So exploring censorship resistance, first in a financial data context, and then throughout the years of hackathons and Reddit lurking and various white papers flying around, I then discovered Ethereum, and the rest is history. I absolutely love that. And that is kind of amazing. So you've been thinking about this stuff for quite a while. I uh, I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on identity in digital spaces and persistent digital environments. So thinking about how we introduce ourselves in environments like World of Warcraft, Chat Roulette back in the day, Instagram had just come out, Facebook, Twitter. And I was really focused on what constructs we use to define privacy for ourselves, meaning deciding what information we want to share, how we construct our presentation of self in different environments, and what contexts we use to establish relationships and hierarchy and trust. And what has always uh, rung true for me is that at the end of the day, we're building tools to coordinate human beings. And those human beings need to be able to present themselves in contexts that make sense with the qualifications, traits, attributes, and preferences that are logical for them and also that, you know, that obey their consent. And that's actually one element at Disco that we think a lot about, consent, um, that hasn't really been part of many of the design practices that I've observed throughout the Web2 ecosystem, more traditional environments. So working on everything from autonomous vehicles to cosmetics, hardware, I rarely saw the best interests of the end user being represented in design practices and eventually in, in the outcomes of marketing processes and distributing products at scale. And so I think it's really important for us in Web3 
to consider what does our curation of self look like? What are the primitives and permissions that we have to express ourselves in this new burgeoning metaverse? And how can we maintain a layer of consent and control for our users and the individuals that are representing themselves in this new space while also taking advantage of the censorship-resistant networks that we have in our blockchain world that do not have a consent layer, where our wallets can receive any token sent to them. So, you know, the double-edged sword there is that with the, the inability to consent to tokens being mapped to your wallet address, you lose some amount of control over how your identity is presented in that ledger. And so really excited to dig in with you on what presentation of self can mean in in these new environs. Oh my gosh, my brain was like buzzing at all of the, the different elements that I am super excited to dive into. I think maybe what might be interesting to start off with is this notion that you were talking about around how we present ourselves in digital spaces. And I'm also trying to think about how I present myself in physical spaces and how those things differ. But I'm curious how you think more broadly, especially because you did an undergraduate thesis on this, um, about how we present ourselves digitally and what that means for us as people who are spending more and more time in the digital space in general. So I think to your point, we spend a lot of time in digital spaces and we have very little control over how that expression of self is captured, measured, quantified, then turned over to data brokers and sold and managed to surface different content back to us. And so we find ourselves in this sort of funny and interesting moment where much of our lives exists in a digital plane where we think that we are expressing ourselves, but really we are providing data inputs for other people's algorithms to decide how to surface our data and present it to other people in our world and our social circles. And so I think in Web3, we have an opportunity to allow people to pursue their fullest expression of self with a layer of consent and control around how that shows up in both digital and physical spaces, where we can enjoy the level of creativity and capability and expression that we think we have now without the intervening algorithms that invisibly curate the way that we show up to other people. I'm really excited about the future enabled by folks like Lens Protocol from Aave, where we can allow users to choose which algorithms and which orders content might show up in their lives and how they are presented to others as well, or at least having some layer of visibility into what kind of curation is happening. Because right now, the way that we utilize apps is in accordance with the design principles of how they're uh, trying to capture data often, as opposed to what makes the most sense in terms of removing friction from our lives as individuals and adding surprise and delight in the process of removing agony. I really love that. Can you dive more into like this notion of consent and where that seed is planted in this concept of like digital identity and, and how that sort of grows? Consent is something that we talk about a lot in physical space. Only an enthusiastic yes means yes when it comes to consenting to physical touch and interaction. So we don't want strangers running up to us and touching us on the street without our permission. And so we have a social contract as a society that is growing stronger with time and with more sort of vocal support. Physical touch and physical interaction requires affirmative consent. But 
touching other parts of ourselves, our digital selves, doesn't always require that same level of enthusiastic, positive consent. The breadcrumbs of data, the little bits that we leave behind or the cookies that we collect that are not legible to us meaningfully as we traipse through the internet, those are not afforded the same enthusiastic, affirmative consent layer that our physical selves um, enjoy and or are starting to enjoy more and more. And so in, in Web3, in our financial networks or in our blockchain networks, there is no consent layer on our addresses, as I, as I mentioned earlier, which is a benefit of this system. It allows our blockchains to work as they do. Anyone who wants to send a token to any address may do so. And that's the beauty of you know direct peer-to-peer financial transaction without an intermediary. However, what that means is that you cannot reject a token headed your way. If I decide to send you an NFT or a billion Shiba coins as Vitalik received, I think it was last year, uh, you cannot turn down that gift, which means that you are immediately in custody of and they're and therefore responsible for whatever assets might come your way, which means that your address is going to be presented you know, as mapped to that variety of tokens, whether you want them or not. And because we have no inflowing consent layer, we cannot reject incoming tokens, the autonomy and self-sovereignty of Web3 wallets comes from our ability to curate that address, to get rid of those tokens that we do not want. However, assets like non-transferable NFTs that add complexity to breaking that mapping and to you know either burning or getting rid of transferring away a token, um, that complexity undermines our right to choose how we present, to choose what is mapped to our address, to choose how that is interpreted by the outside world. Because these public global networks do not have the ability to provide nuanced context for how um, a token came to be mapped to a given wallet address. It's really hard to tell without some further digging whether a token you know, in someone's wallet was purchased, uh, stolen, gifted, earned, airdropped, provided as payment alongside some fiat transfer, et cetera. And without that context, really what public chains are best for is documenting the existence of assets with a double spend problem for which global public availability is optimal. And for all data types where we don't have those needs, that don't meet those criteria, a public blockchain is probably going to be a suboptimal solution for whatever you're trying to accomplish. So in the case of identity and self-presentation, the lack of a consent layer means that our wallet addresses are limited in their ability to express us. And similarly, because of the global public availability and transferability of these assets, our our public addresses can really only share our financial data. And so if that's the only information we have about one another in the metaverse, we can't have a very fun party, right? It's like a party where everyone can only introduce themselves with their bank accounts. It's like a pretty weird way to get things going. (laughs) Um, And so if we want to have more fun together in the metaverse, We want to solve more interesting coordination problems. We want to have a more nuanced ability to control the way we express, you know, the fullest range of ourselves, our sense of humor, our preferences, our friends, who trusts us, where, what communities we're part of, then we're going to need a more expressive data primitive. And we're going to need a data primitive that allows for expiration, revocation, and self-curation. So the ability to remove pieces of data with relative ease without additional and complexity and unnecessary expense. I feel like my default mental model for expression in Web3 is actually reliant upon ownership, where 
if I am someone who loves dogs, let's say, my Web3 version of me in my mind currently, which I'm realizing as you're talking about this is probably a broken mental model, is, okay, I joined DogDAO and I own DogDAO tokens. And that is my mechanism of expression is effectively ownership of those tokens. And I think that there's value in that. But what you're getting at is really interesting because it's actually not only this way of saying I have control over my data and and I'm, I know we'll get into all that stuff, but it's also saying not all data in this digital space in Web3 needs to be I own this thing and that is how I present myself, which also feels like it opens up the doors for what it means to express yourself in Web3. Because to be honest, if ownership is one of the main ways we express ourselves, like we're gatekeeping ownership to people who can afford to buy NFTs and certain tokens and all of that stuff. I'm curious if you see a a sort of interesting trend towards like ownership as expression that's maybe we're over-indexing on that in Web3. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. It absolutely makes sense. I think ownership in Web3 is our primary form of expression because it is largely our only form of expression. We can create, we can own, we can sell, we can buy, and that's largely the set of use cases best served by blockchain networks. And we, you know, in in the sort of inimitable words of Tyler Durden in Fight Club, you are more than the contents of your wallet right? You are the all singing, all dancing crap of this world. And that means that we need data primitives that can describe all of those different activities that make you. And so financial transaction, of course, is the most fundamental of human rights and capabilities because it unlocks our ability to participate in all of our other various rights, freedom of expression, and and, and all of the other forms that takes. First, you need the ability to, to transact so that you can buy posters for your protest and you can pay for transportation to go to a, a location to gather with others. You can pay for spaces to gather and organize with your community, whatever form that takes. But transaction is just an enabler because the data that comprises ourselves, our footprint, the evidence of our existence, only a tiny fraction of that is our financial transactions and, and our transactional data that might be appropriate for a public chain. I would wager that maybe you know, 98, 99% of our data is not financial data. The data that describes how we walk through the world physically, our location data, the exertion of our bodies as we exercise, the music that we listen to, the shows that we go to, the spaces we hang out in with our friends, the coffee preferences we have, the seat we like on an airplane, all these preferences, capabilities, accomplishments, proofs of um, participation are not transactional data necessarily, though they may be related to some other transaction, but they are more nuanced than what is Uh, best suited for on-chain data primitives, which is why verifiable credentials, these technical standards from the World Wide Web Consortium that, that allow us to present signed blobs of JSON written by one party about another to describe whatever activity. And they can be any kind of file, video, image, keys, text, whatever structured data, but they give us the Web3 atomic capabilities that we can enjoy from on-chain tokens, the ability to present data to a smart contract to incite some action on-chain, but they can contain a full range of data that is not appropriate for global public availability and might more appropriately or closely describe the things that we do that make us us 
outside of our financial accounts. When I think of our potential expression in Web3, I think that it should incorporate all of the data that can possibly describe us or be relevant to supporting our lives. And that doesn't need to be limited to only that data that we can put on a public chain or that is optimal to put there. I'm watching my my brain react as you talk about some of this. And there's almost this sense of relief to me because one of my biggest fears is that Web3 becomes the financialization of everything. And as you're talking about this, I'm realizing that one of the reasons that it feels like that is a possibility is because we are trying to put, to your point, all of this as like financial data. And that's the, the primitive that everything came out of. But maybe that's just the early days of Web3. And it sounds like there's really an evolution of this where not all data needs to be a financial transaction. So I'm curious in the context of that, how you would define Web3. I think of Web1 as read, Web2 as read-write, and Web3 as read-write-own. To your point earlier, ownership has only been known to us in a Web3 context with our tokenization of everything, the hyper-financialization of our interactions, because those are the kinds of interactions best afforded to us by these networks. However, I think in Web3, atomic data and true ownership enabled by key pairs, that's the vibe. And we can enjoy all of the ownership of our non-custodial wallets that we can take with with our financial assets. We can enjoy that same kind of ownership with any other sort of data that is signed, encrypted against our public key, owned and controlled by us as individuals, as the subjects of that data. I don't know why I hadn't thought of it like that before, of like this ability to own your data being something that doesn't need to be inherently financial, but is just like a right in the same way that consent is something that should just be like inherent to the world, which I think is so interesting. But I'm curious to get a little bit into like disco and exactly what this looks like. I I heard you describe disco as like a backpack of your data. So I, I love that analogy. And I'm curious, like more broadly, how you describe disco in this world. Totally. So we are called disco because we believe that you are the multifaceted center of the party. You have so many different sides and facets to you, so many names that you go by, the personality that your friends know, the handle that you use on Twitter, your email address, work moniker, your LinkedIn profile, all these different facets of you that reflect different parts of your data out to the world. And we believe that you should be in ownership and control of all of those different facets, and you should choose which way those are reflected in what different contexts. And so the vision that we have for Disco is that in a few years, we will invite you to a Disco Ball at the Louvre in Paris. And the only thing that you'll need when you get off your couch at home is your Disco profile through the doors of your building, your ride share, airport security, border screenings, health screenings, all the way to the door of the event, to the VIP room, and to the bar where you're getting free drinks. Because we believe that the metaverse is one where you can show up in any digital or physical environment and receive a personalized experience as a result of the parts of yourself that you choose to share. 
your data should be able to introduce you and deliver that personalized experience in the same way that when you connect your Web3 wallet, your tokens introduce you into that environment and enable the experiences or provide you with a set of experiences that are permitted based on the qualifications you have in your wallet. I grew up watching a lot of goofy cartoon shows, but also reading a lot of sci-fi. And when I think of shows like The Jetsons, we never see them waiting in line. We never see them filling out forms. They have the seamless ability to switch from one activity to the next. Elroy can be jettisoned from his parents' spaceship off to the school station in his own little spaceship because there's probably a mesh network that can recognize the identity of an incoming student and allow them to dock at the school. And so our vision for the future need not be limited to one stilted by bridges or hyper-financialized and denominated in tokens because we can capture any data that might describe us, any data that reflects what we've been up to, what we've accomplished, what we prefer, who we are. And we can put that in a little data backpack that we carry with us from app to app, from web two to web three, meaning that we can bring the data that we need to have a personalized experience, show up at the front door of an app, choose which parts of ourselves we want to share, and then proceed through that experience in a way that's going to suit us. So what this means is that we should never have to fill out forms again. We should not have to do CAPTCHAs because we know that we are people and not bots. And our data is sufficient often to be able to prove that fact without us needing to do another activity at the front end to satisfy the needs of an app that simply cannot communicate with those around it effectively. And so for our vision of Disco, we want to enable everyone to have their own data backpack that's full of the data that describes their activities IRL, in the apps and Web2 that they enjoy, in the stores where they buy the objects that fill their lives, in the Web3 apps that they hang out in the Ethereum ecosystem, in Solana, Near, Celo, Bitcoin, and, you know, and beyond. I love that. And I think the Web3 backpack element is so interesting, or the data backpack. Um, and assuming, I suppose, that like this element of how you engage with something like a form would also be consent-based where you have, I don't know, I guess you're not emptying the contents of your backpack. You're like letting people see in, but it's at like each a, level. Sorry, Chase. <laughs> sorry. No, no, so you're good. I got so excited about this. And, <laughs> and that's exactly the thing about consent is that when you're wearing a backpack, you're walking around and it's pretty weird if someone just comes up and starts rifling through your backpack. And so when you want to share something that you have in your bag, you're going to open your bag and you're going to pull that thing out and you're going to present it because you're holding it, it's yours, you get to choose how it gets presented. And that is how our interactions with apps should be. And this gets at a really important point, I think, around consent, which is we can only consent, we can only provide informed consent to questions and inquiries that we can understand. We can only provide informed consent over data that we understand. So we cannot provide informed consent over a raw bucket of JSON, over a string of encrypted numbers and letters that when we look at it, it looks like gobbledygook to us. We can't provide informed consent to share information that's not structured in a way that we cannot ourselves interpret. And so what this means is that credentials, information that's presented to you, like the credentials in your Apple wallet that has human readable information on it, that says what it is, that allows you to click into it and learn more. Um, these units of data that are structured for human interpretation, for human reading, are um, a really exciting part of Web3 that Disco is enabling you know, us to unlock. 
is the ability to interact with our data in a form that can be used and leveraged by smart contracts and applications, but can also be understood by human beings. So something that came to mind for me, this tension between consent and coercion that we've seen in the physical world for as long as humans have existed. And I'm curious, my like doomsday web three brain goes to this concept of like, what does it look like for people to be coerced into giving consent? And it feels like today that's what happens with terms and conditions that we can't understand. When you use a lot of web two platforms, you are agreeing to all of these different things in a way that is like technically consent, but you're also effectively forced to agree to it because all of your friends are there and like all of these elements sort of make it challenging to say no. And so I'm curious how you think about that in this world where we own our own data, let's say, but there are still these abilities to build like social norms that make it so that consent isn't really consent. I'm curious how you think about that. Fundamentally, I think it's a design choice to determine how much of your experience will cater to the needs and requirements of your user. Of course, in Web2, we've learned that apps consuming as much user data as possible and then turning around and monetizing that with an umbrella terms and conditions that permits them to do so, that that proves to be a very um, useful model for uh, turning around revenue quickly, but it also puts that application at risk because they are then responsible for caring for all of this personally identifiable information, all these email addresses and zip codes and you know social security numbers that they've collected over the years need to be stored somewhere. They take up physical space, which means they have to be insured. They're a liability on the balance sheet. Um, and so the coercion that we see in Web2 around consenting to an umbrella access to our data in perpetuity really is starting to break down now as we're starting to see more large-scale hacks of this data, poor security around it, and just the expense and complexity of complying with laws like GDPR and CCPA, European and American data privacy laws that permit users to request what is my data, how are you using it, and demanding that, that it be deleted. A lot of Web2 systems were not built for these kinds of inquiries and individual removals and interrogations. And so it's becoming very expensive and arduous to comply with these laws now. So the benefits of coercion are weaning. But in Web3, I don't think we are talking enough about how we respect the autonomy of our users and we avoid the odd coercive strategies of Web2 that ended up with all these apps in a position to be managing their users' data in a risky form. So part of that is a question of how do we incorporate consent, informed consent, into the design practices that build our networks, our protocols, our applications in Web3. But I also think about it in terms of value flow. So right now, uh, a lot of applications in Web2 benefit from the network effects of the fact that our data is largely already out there. And so the composability of our data for purposes of those apps is marginally useful for them, but extremely useful for us as users. And in Web3, with the ownership of tokens being squarely in the hands of users, uh, especially in, in non-custodial situations, we see this shift 
where apps are now more catering to their users' preferences because those users have ultimate ownership and control over um, the asset of value, which in this case is not personally identifiable information, but rather is financial information. So in Web3, because we have not yet captured the data primitive that Web2 forwent consent to enjoy, we still have time to intervene and to design better systems. So our personal data is not yet fully expressed in Web3, so we have an opportunity to design a better way to capture it than we did in Web2. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, how do you think about this relationship between financial data and personal data? Because I was thinking about this the other day in a Web2 context, and I can't remember what exactly it was, but there was some check where I was like, oh, well, I could just see how much ETH this account has or whatever. I I can't remember exactly why, but it was interesting because I was like, oh, wait, (laughs) identities are not linked to financial data in the real world. (laughs) This is not how this works. So I can't have a conversation with you and then look up how much is in your bank account. And so I'm curious from just like a design pattern perspective and a human perspective, do you think that's something that's going to be pulled through into Web3 as we continue to build? Or do you think those things will be decoupled? So my hope is that users will have the full range of choice when it comes to deciding how transparent they want to be about any traits related to any of their identifiers. So if folks want to link their human readable names, their government identities, their email addresses, their Twitter handles, their Discord servers, their websites, their Ethereum addresses, their Solana addresses, and want to make that all public, then they should be afforded that opportunity. But if they would prefer to have those linkages exist and keep them all private, that should be permitted as well. And every flavor of granularity in between total privacy and total publicity And that is the point of freedom and autonomy in Web3, in my estimation. So because we are human beings and we need human readable information, because we cannot, as we were discussing earlier, we cannot operate in a world where we are interacting with code as smart contracts do, we have started to create shortcuts and tools that make it easier for us to interact. Things like ENS that relate human readable um, aliases to our public identifiers. Now, these sorts of linkages, these kind of shortcuts that make it really easy to tell someone's presented identity in something like a Zoom call or or Twitter handle and their financial data, these linkages have casually become very easy to make. And in that ease and simplicity, we remove a conversation or we have failed to have a conversation about what the consequences are of making Mm. those linkages, of making it really easy for Chase to look up the financial information of a counterparty after a conversation or whatever. And we, because we have defaulted to public ledgers and we are building tools around those ledgers instead of building tools around other forms of data capture like private or off-chain decentralized data, we have inadvertently embraced those linkages in a very public way without inviting a degree of um, privacy in the other direction, uh, we are defaulting to these more public linkages, which I think is a dangerous default. Yeah, I'm curious what you think some of those consequences would be if we can't address this in a way that is effective. So if you lose control over, you lose the keys that are related to, let's say, a public address that has 
your human readable information related to it and non-transferable NFTs mapped to it that described your qualifications. That's it's a lot like losing your phone, losing your computer, losing your house keys, losing your birth certificate and all your vital documents, right? There you have you've tied your identity to keys that you can't rotate. So from an OPSEC perspective, that's a bit of a nightmare. But furthermore, when we think about things like consent, if we adopt standards like or we embrace modifications of specs like non-transferable NFTs, we can create a pretty weird dystopia. So if some bad actor sends me a non-transferable NFT with illegal content in it, onlookers cannot tell whether that was wanted or unwanted. And perhaps I have the ability to spend some gas fees and burn that NFT or transfer it out, but perhaps I don't. And so if we lose the ability to curate how our address is presenting in the world, because any random person can immutably map a non-transferable NFT to our public address, then we create a weird stratification where you have to have a lot of money to be able to, for example, pay gas fees to remove these assets. Or if you cannot, we put a lot of pressure on the front ends of NFT marketplaces and displays like OpenSea or Zapper to hide unwanted content. And that sort of desired content versus undesired content has to be curated manually by the user. And then those preferences need to be communicated in some way across to new applications. Um, So it just seems like a, a really inefficient manner of capturing data otherwise much better suited for verifiable credentials. That makes a lot of sense. And the other thing that comes to mind that I believe is part of the verifiable credentials sort of spec is this notion of some duration that is not forever. (laughs) Because one of the things that really concerns me is, particularly when we think about identity on chain, immutability, period, is a little bit worrying. Identity based on an immutable ledger of everything that's ever happened and trying to represent all characteristics of you as a human in that immutable ledger feels incredibly stupid. So I'm very curious how you think about that. So perhaps like some of your listeners, I grew up in a family where some older relatives had lived through the Second World War and through the Holocaust. When public documentation of religious minorities, ethnic minorities led to violence and genocide. And so that very terrifying outcome of what it means to capture personal data in a public way that is then weaponized, that looms large in my thoughts more often than I would like it to. And when we think of documenting our lives in an open and public way, we take away the option of consent. When we make data immutable and public on-chain, we remove the full spectrum of how we might choose to share it in that spectrum afforded us by our key pairs, where we can own things like data that are private only to us and known only to our keys. And we can also, on the other end of the spectrum, we can publicize it on-chain. And when we do the latter, we take away the spectrum of choices in between, where more granular data sharing might be useful to us or offer us greater flexibility and control. I think it's an expensive overshare to put things on chain that do not have a double spend problem, do not require global public availability until the heat death of the universe and access from everyone on Earth and in space with an internet connection. The public chain is a limited natural resource, a public good, and littering is not great IRL or in Web3. But furthermore, the expense of putting things on chain means that we create economic stratification 
for the way that we can express ourselves. We need a way to join Web3 and enjoy the portability of our data enabled by new primitives without first you know, having to pull out our credit card or connect a bank account because many people in our world don't have those things. And so I think on-chain maximalism is elitist, bordering on data exhibitionist, and I think is often perpetuated by folks who have a vested interest in pumping the price of the tokens upon which their proposed on-chain actions might occur. It also really worries me in the identity space when we talk about on-chain identity that many folks are exploring, you know, what does it mean for us to encrypt data and then put it on chain? And when I hear that, what it means for me is that we are predicating the, on the assumption that encryption is going to hold forever. That, you know, definitely it's not going to be broken within our lifetimes, that the standards that we are using will last through the ages, which seems... Uh, a little, um, you know, an aggressive assumption. I believe in math <laughs> as much as the next person, but it feels unwise for us to be so bold as to make that assumption. And so if we take sensitive data that we intend to keep private, we encrypt it, we put it on chain. It's like building a panopticon where we are putting blinds on the guards and we are just hoping that they won't, you know, fall off after 10 years, mm -hmm. which we know that they might. Yeah, that's really, that's a really interesting perspective. And the idea of the chain is this like public good and, and not littering is blowing my mind a little bit because it makes so much sense. And then before we wrap up, I have to ask one last question. When you think about like how data is stored for something like Disco, is it a, is it like still decentralized? Like, how do you think about that element? So in the war on data, Disco is pro-choice. We believe that in the same way you should have the autonomy to choose your identifiers, to choose how you link them together, to choose which parts of yourself to present, to choose which data about yourself to curate and to share. We believe that you should be able to choose where that data lives as well. So as we launch, we will encrypt credentials against your public key so they're owned and controlled by you. We'll store them with our friends at Ceramic. So that's decentralized off-chain storage controlled by our users so that Disco does not own your data, only you own your data. And we're really excited in the coming months to be able to also integrate private data storage solutions um, like Kepler from our friends at Spruce ID and like Privy. Uh, and so what this will start to enable for us is that users can choose every facet of the stack that makes them. So they will be able to choose which identifiers they want to present to the world. They'll be able to choose how they're linked. They'll be able to choose which data describes them. They'll be able to choose how that data is presented. They'll be able to choose how it is stored. Because for Disco, Web3 means autonomy, means choice, means the ability to enjoy your full range of expression in the way that you prefer. I love this idea of being able to choose the even place where you want your data to be stored. That's like ultimately embodying what you want to, to do for users. So that's a really cool approach. Before we wrap up, I have a segment at the end of the show, which is what is your favorite thing in your wallet? Maybe this will evolve into wallet or your backpack, but it could be an ERC-20, 721, 1155, whatever you want. But what is your favorite thing in your wallet? Oh my gosh, my favorite thing in my wallet is probably, actually I'm pulling up my wallet right now so I can look at it and tell you. It's so hard to choose a favorite crypto asset. It's like, I'm, I don't have kids, but I'm sure it's like choosing a favorite child. <laughs> um, but I, so my friend Carson Woods, Carson Daly on Twitter, follow her, she's great, created a collection a while ago called NFT Affirmations. 
And there are a bunch of beautiful images with affirmations in front of them in text. The images are designed by Chad Knight and Parrot. And I think my favorite NFT that I have says, people pay me to tell them about the blockchain. (laughs) These affirmations are important for us to share, but I also really love NFT affirmations because they're my favorite thing to gift when folks are new Mm. to Web3. So actually just this morning, my friend um, Brooke, who's an amazing event producer out here in Los Angeles, was getting her MetaMask set up. So I was able to gift her with, uh, with an affirmation of her own. My community will always support me in my future endeavors. So those are the wag me vibes that we want to spread throughout the metaverse. I absolutely love it. We love a good affirmation. Where can people find you though, Evan, and learn more about Disco? So you can always visit us at disco.xyz, drop us your email, tell us your dreams for the metaverse, and we will have some exciting updates coming shortly. And if you just can't wait, you can follow me on Twitter at Proven Authority. You can also drop me a line anytime at evan at disco.xyz. Amazing. Evan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chase. I'll see you in the metaverse. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.